Welcome to this Asia Global podcast, brought to you by the Asia Global Institute at the University of Hong Kong. I'm your host, Alejandro Reyes, the Institute's Director of Knowledge Dissemination. In our programs here in Hong Kong and online, and in the content that we produce, we focus on presenting Asian perspectives on global issues. Follow the Asia Global Institute on social media, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and YouTube, and visit the Asia Global Institute website to sign up and receive our news and information, including the weekly Asia Global online journal. This podcast is part of our Meet the Author series, where we have a conversation with contributors to Asia Global Online and other publications of the Institute. This podcast is part of our Meet the Author series, where we have a conversation with contributors to Asia Global Online and other publications of the Institute. Joining me now from Stanford University in Palo Alto, California, is Yvonne Chu. She is a national fellow at the Hoover Institution of Stanford and a professor at the U.S. Naval War College. Her book, Conspiring with the Enemy, The Ethic of Cooperation in Warfare, won the North American Society for Social Philosophy Book Award in 2019 and the International Studies Association International Ethics Section Book Award in 2021. More personally, Yvonne was a colleague of mine when she taught here at the University of Hong Kong. She was a great teacher and a very supportive colleague. So now let me just stress here that the views um, that Yvonne expresses in her article and here in this discussion are hers alone and do not reflect those of her institutions. Yvonne, welcome. So lovely to see you. Thanks for having me. I'm very happy to be talking to you. Um, Great, thank you very much. Now, in your article, you note that efforts are being made to regulate cyber warfare or to prevent cyber attacks from escalating into traditional war. And of course, we've seen reports over the years, you know, attacks from China, attacks from on the United States, attacks from China, attacks from um, North Korea, Russia, uh, many different kinds of attacks. Now, however, you argue that the discussions that are going on about whether cyber attacks should be considered war or how the law of armed conflict should apply to cyber warfare, that, that all of these discussions will prove ineffective or futile without a shared understanding between enemies about a fundamental question. You know, is cyber warfare not just sort of a catchy slogan like, like war on poverty or war on Christmas, or is it actually warfare? So I'm wondering if you could talk a bit about that debate. You know, uh, where is it going on and is it really going on in a, in, in a meaningful way, this particular debate? Yeah, so um, this is a really important debate. Um, and I think it's not being tackled directly enough, um, partly because the people who are discussing it are uh, mostly in the business of conducting war or trying to prevent war. And basically when you're in that position, you're just automatically thrown into a situation which you're, you're trying to cope with what's coming at you. And you know, if there's a cyber attack coming, you're not gonna 
pause and think about, well, is this war I'm dealing with? Is this not war? And you're just going to try to respond. And so, um, you know, so it's just the nature of having to deal with the immediate activity and immediate threats um, that you're not going to have the luxury of being able to step back and and um, and wrestle with the broader conceptual question. But the point of this um, uh, this essay that I wrote was to try to get other people who are not as busy <laughs> dealing with um, the immediate um, media cyber threats and media cyber activity to think about what it is uh, that we're that we're doing. Um, you know, is and it makes a you know and um, it makes a big difference whether something whether we think of something is war or not war um, because there's a whole. Um, body, a massive and very, very well-developed body of international law that governs war, that does it um, in a very different way than it governs criminal activity, right? right? Uh, and and it's something that we need to work out when uh, when you're thinking about, it will also, it affects the way you respond to cyber activity, whether you think it's war or not war, and it will also affect the way that you want to conduct cyber activity. Right. Now, in, in, in your article, I, I think it's, it, it, you know, it's so well organized because you, you start by talking about, well, what do we mean by war, right? And, and I think you, you also, uh, you talk about some of the Chinese writings on this, on this issue. I, I want you to talk about that. What, what do we mean by war? And, and, and you know, what is the kind of, con what is the concept? I mean, people think of it uh, uh, generally as uh, kinetic wars, right? That there's really force and military action, but but you you really discuss this topic and, and talk about the possible broader conception of war. Yeah. So um, as you said, the traditional concept of war is kinetic, right? It's physical activity. You are you know you're fighting someone. You're beating physically beating someone, <laughs> um, or killing people, or destroying um, you know physical objects or people. Um, but there's a broader conception of war which um, which accompanies that kinetic definition of war. It includes diplomacy around all of this kinetic activity, intelligence gathering, propaganda, and a question, and um, one of the interesting things about asking specifically what it, those boundaries, how broad the boundary of war is, um, is because a lot of this discussion of cyber warfare is taking place around the US-China um, competitive relationship. And um, especially, you know, on, Western military uh, scholars and planners are always drawn to um, classical Chinese writings on military ethics. And one of the things that gets taught a lot is you know, uh, Shunzi's um, conception of, uh, and it's not, it's, not, it's not original to Shunzi, um, Tai Gong talks about it as well. Uh, you know, the ideal being, the ideal in warfare is to defeat the enemy without fighting, right? And what does this actually mean? Um, and I think it's something, so one, there, there are a couple questions here <laughs> to deal with. One is, the first question is, is of course, does the Chinese military actually adhere to um, these classical conceptions of warfare? Or is this something that's, you know, a part of the past history, but, um, but doesn't influence its thinking so much now? Um, two, if it does influence its thinking, then the question is, what is that, what does this aphorism, what's become an aphorism, you know, winning without fighting, what does this actually mean, right? Can you actually um, defeat another country? Can you defeat its military without engaging in um, kinetic interactions? And what, would, and what would that require? 
this then becomes a very relevant question for cyber war. There's, um, I think, you know, cyber war can sometimes be held out as an ideal of, you know, a way of fight of winning a war without fighting. Um, but I'm not so sure that that's actually possible. I mean, so so when people think of cyber attacks, I, I mean, they, they think about, you know, Russian intervention in the election or, or uh, I guess, hacks that uh, uh, try to get into um, uh, government agencies, uh, uh, things like that. And, and we've, uh, we've seen recent examples of that. Um, so, yes, I mean, people will say, well, uh, it, uh, are these are these really attacks meant to that they're equivalent to warfare, or in the sense that they want to achieve some kind of victory, if you will, or are they simply ways to hamper, or you know, in other words, espionage that maybe we've seen before through the many many years that they're just simply meant to get information or hamper the smooth running of government in some way, right? The kind of James Bond things that, that one might have expected. Um, uh, how, how do you, how, how would you explain this then? You know, it, it, because it, it's a kind of weird way, how, how would you calibrate it, uh, in other words? What, what, what would you use, um, what sort of, um, uh, I'm getting at a loss for words, but what kind of, um, calibrations would you use to sort of define what, what when a cyber attack is, is cyber warfare? Yeah, I mean, so that's a difficult question. And I think that's something I don't have the answer for. Um, that's something that the answer can only, but I do think the answer can only be developed. It can, has to be developed in conjunction with discussion. Um, so, I mean, I, I, as a political theorist, can sit here and and, ha and come up with these abstract categories, right? But basically, there's and so there are things that are very clearly warfare. I think cyber cyber attacks. I think they're very clearly um, should be considered warfare. So anything that's directly in the service of a physical attack, right? Um, you know, right. disabling um, uh, disabling um, radar systems so that you can right. send in um, a bomber or something, right? Then there's stuff that is very. I think you know. Um, more, more obviously not um, uh, an act of warfare. So, for example, just um, you know, a hack that that steals a bunch of personal information, right? With um, you know, an unspecified use and unclear um, unclear purpose. So that I would call. But there is a gradient between competition, geopolitical competition, and warfare. And so I think it's pretty clear what is warfare, what's not warfare, but this whole middle zone in the middle um, that we're not so sure about that. And what I do think is that where that line is drawn is one is going to require all sorts of discussion with people who are actually engaged in these activities, um, in these competitive activities. Um, and two, it's going to depend on the it will also depend on the context of the geo, the existing geopolitical relationship. You can imagine um, a cyber attack from an ally, and let's face it, allies, um, you know, uh, will are still in competition with each other geopolitically. A cyber attack from an ally um, having a very different meaning 
have, having very different geopolitical meaning than one from uh, a competitor um, or more obvious competitor. So, so this actually hues to the topic of your book, right? Because you're mm -hmm. talking you're talking here that okay, we can't come up with a kind of framework for understanding when cyber attacks are equivalent to warfare unless there's some actual discussion um, in some ways about the among the enemies, among among the adversaries, right? Mm -hmm. So 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 what are the ethics of cooperation uh, between enemies in warfare? Because he, here comes a real example of uh, where there should be some kind of cooperation between enemies. And you deal with that in your book so masterfully. So why don't you talk a bit about that issue? Okay, yeah, so um, so just as a segue, um, I think the part of the depressing part about this whole cyber, um, uh, trying to conceptualize cyber warfare is that um, we're going to be unsuccessful at it and unless we fight a lot of it. And that's just the reality. And I think um, part of the desire to try to get some um, categories in place and to try to get some rules in place um, now is to prevent some of the fighting um, cyber uh, cyber warfare, to try to, um, to try to constrain it more, minimize its damage. But the fact is that any kind of equilibrium uh, that will emerge will have to be done at least in part through fighting and seeing how things actually shake out. So that's the depressing part of it. <laughs> um, so then related to, um, to the book. So I argue that there is um, that in the course of all of the fighting that human beings have done over millennia, that an ethic of cooperation has risen up, um, has grown in warfare, you know, kind of counterintuitively. You don't think of warfare as a place in which, as a, and as a place where, as an activity in which enemies actually cooperate with each other while they're trying to kill each other, right? So these are not, you know, allies or you know enemies who are who decide to work together to defeat a common, um, a mutual third-party enemy. They're actually trying to kill each other now, but still cooperating on a variety of things. And so, and that, um, and that this cooperation itself is it grows out of lots of different um, motivations, you know, mostly self-interest, um, but uh, also gets imbued with humanitarian meaning. Um, Considerations, human rights, various other things, and that, that over time, the the reason it's an ethic of cooperation is that it becomes people begin to perceive the cooperation itself as being the right thing to do. Um, and so, I talk about three different types of cooperation in the book. One is to, um, cooperating with your enemy to have a fair fight, um, and you know this might involve banning certain types of weapons. Um, when you're trying to kill your enemy because it's seen as being dishonorable or um, unfair, or unsoldierly, um, you know, you don't want your, you don't want even an enemy, you don't want a fellow warrior to die in an ignoble way. Um, so that's, you know, that's one way of cooperating. The other is to cooperate to protect certain classes of people, most famously civilians, um, but also lots of other example, uh, medics, um, religious, uh, leaders and political leaders um, of various kinds. And then the third method of cooperation, which is much rarer, is to cooperate to try to end the war quickly. This usually happens under circumstances of relative, um, or actually not relative, um, of scarcity, right? You have, you know, um, scarce population, small population, um, enormous demands on their time, for example, with um, in certain types of agricultural societies, and you don't, you can't, you don't have the resources to spend um, fighting extended unlimited wars. And so you want to 
you want to constrain the amount of time you spend fighting. You want to constrain the losses of war, um, so you can get back to uh, your to other activities, um, the more important activities in your life, which is surviving, right? Growing right. new crops, harvesting them, um, you know, uh, cultivating your, your society. So um, those are kind of three different types, and I talk about you know some of the a lot of different examples and a lot of the problems as well. Um, the, 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 the benefits and uh, of, of pursuing these types of cooperation, but also um, in many cases, a lot of the problems yeah. and then the contradictions between them because they all kind of exist at the same time, but they don't always go together. So, so as a complete sort of layman to these things, um, mm -hmm. I guess you know, when you think about enemies cooperating, uh, you know, things like the Geneva Conventions and uh, stuff like that. And then, uh, you know, there has to be a certain level of trust, right, and um, <clears throat> involved. But, um, but that can often be skin deep, if you will. It can be very, very superficial levels of trust. And then behind the scenes, uh, things are not being done according to those conventions. Um, you know, one often thinks of, uh, you know, people who go by the, the so-called Queensbury rules, you know, the, the proper engagement and sportsmanship, but yet, you know, if, you're, if your opponent um, professes to go uh, uh, to, to conduct themselves according to those rules, but behind the scenes does not, uh, then there becomes a kind of asymmet asymmetric uh, um, relationship there. Um, so I would think that it's, building that level of trust to ensure that there is that kind of cooperation on on, on a framework uh, would be very difficult if not impossible to achieve in, in, a, in an arena such as cyber uh, attacks because everything is kind of behind the scenes you don't see uh, physical injuries or you don't see you know there, there are things that are happening uh, in, in in cyberspace so, so how, how 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 can just like a a, a a layman kind of kind of come to terms with this idea then? Um, so, yeah, you're absolutely right. I think building trust. So, so I'll start with one of some of the things that make cooperation between enemies possible, right. and then you know talk about why it is that cyber war is going to be especially difficult. Um, so, some of the things that make cooperation between enemies possible is. Being, in, being actually physically encountering each other, right? And then you can, either you see that your enemy is not as uh, monstrous as you thought they were. Um, you see that perhaps maybe your own commanding officers, <laughs> you know, making um, bad decisions and putting you in danger, or it's actually perhaps more of your enemy than the guy who's across the, you know, the line from you who's also just trying to survive. Um, it could be that, um, you know, uh, you have you have been trained to with a sense of warrior honor and military professionalism and that your opponent also has um, received similar training and so you, you come to the table with similar ideas about what a warrior is what a um, uh, what a military person is and the, and the types of things they're supposed to do and so that so um, that is a kind of you know, um, uh, similarity between the two. It doesn't require direct interaction between them, but you have, you know, parallel types of, um, you know, uh, training and education, right. right? And this, of course, requires, um, 
enforcement. That's actually some, a lot of the, the tricky part about, um, well, many tricky things about the international um, law and military ethics is that there's, there's not that much in the way of international enforcement on violations of, of um, military law. It does require mostly that sovereign states enforce um, the law, the international law on their own service members, um, which they are often very reluctant to do because they don't want to punish <laughs> their own right. service members doing things that might have helped them win. Um, so there's, there's that, um, but all of these things uh, then make, it's obvious why that you know, would be difficult um, to enforce in cyber warfare, but that that person-to-person connection, um, which is kind of the foundation of a lot of, of um, cooperation between enemies and war, it is necessarily missing um, in cyber warfare. And I think that's going, so actually two things, two things are missing. One is um, the potential for personal interactions. And the second is, I think the conception of warriordom or warriorhood. Um, and this is, this is a, a, a broader problem, I think, for militaries as they become more and more technologically advanced. Um, you militaries, as you develop the technological capacity, the, fir oh, the first thing you wanna do is put more distance between yourself and the enemy. For obvious reasons, right? But um, and you and you're usually doing that with technology, um, and you you also develop technology that has um, that that relies more on technological skill as opposed to warrior skill. Um, and so the question, and so for example, things like uh, um, drone pilots, right? Where you're doing these um, strikes. Um, aerial strikes on targets that are very far away, sometimes up to 7,000 miles away from you. Now, um, so the military I'm most familiar with is the U.S. military. The U.S. military to this point um, is still using trained pilots um, to conduct these, these drone strikes. And there are really good reasons for that. You want them to be able to understand things like, um, you know, the aeronautics right. <laughs> of, yeah. um, of flying. And that's really important. But at some point, um, well, there's a trade-off, right? Because you, because all these people, all these pilots who spend a lot of time training to be pilots are not necessarily gaining the um, perhaps some of the spending the time gaining some of the skills they might need to be better at drone piloting um, and to and and these remote um, airstrikes. So there, at some point, there comes a trade-off between these uh, between these skills. Now. Um, well, there, there may come a day in which you have the, the drone pilots not be trained um, fighter pilots um, or other types of pilots. Will they, they might be engineers. They might be people who grew up playing video games, right? So will they, be, will they have that same warrior ethic um, that they right. can bring to people? Um, and that's a, I think that's a concern for this idea of cooperating with the enemy, being able to reach some kind of stable, equal, stable equilibrium about how you how you fight your war. Um, it's gonna have to come from other sources than the idea of a professional warrior. Um, and that's, it's gonna be a big shift in the way the, it could potentially, sorry, not going to be, it could potentially be a big shift in the way parts of the military thinks of itself and parts of how it, it does its training. This is really fascinating because, uh, you know, indeed in your article, you talk about um, 
how cyber activity raises the question of these targeted killings with drones and you know what what, what does that mean in terms of the definition of a battlefield right what is the mm -hmm. what is a zone of combat and, and you know should war be confined to a particular battlefield oh, Sorry, I, 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 um, you're, uh, I lost I, you for just a second. Could oh, you go okay. back about 30 seconds? Yeah, no, no worries. Uh, no, I, it's fascinating because, um, you know, you bring up drones and in your article, indeed, you, you talk about targeted killings with drones and, and how this raises questions about, you know, what is a battlefield? When is one in a zone of combat? Should war be confined to the battlefield? And when when can one legitimately kill off the battlefield? Um, you know who is a legitimate target, and you know under what circumstances? All, all very kind of difficult, new, I guess, ethical questions that are raised by um, by this kind of technological uh, advance, these technological advances. But you know, and, and cyber activity, you say, also raises its own distinct questions. You know, can non-physical conflict alone count as war? Can one really win a war without using force? Uh, you know, th th this idea of the the, the 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 ideal of war, winning without fighting. You know, so um, I, I'm I'm wondering then, what what, what does this mean going forward, uh, given? I mean, I, I sometimes have visions of, are we going to be fighting wars that are simulated on computer or, or like virtual wars and, and, and have some agreements as to like, you know, we won't have real casualties uh, and we'll just have a simulated war that's run by eight competing AIs. And then mm. whatever the results of the war, we're all gonna it'd be like, you know, uh, playing chess or something like that. I, I don't know. And, and so I'm wondering what, what all this means in practice, um, if we're heading towards a technological kind of world, an even more hyper-technological world. Yeah, well, I mean, I think it means that in the short run, we're in a world of trouble <laughs> because right. we have all of these unsettled questions already from, you know, um, remote uh, targeted attacks. And then they, they, all those questions are relevant to cyber warfare, plus, you know, these unique ones about whether you can win um, without kinetic fighting. And I think, so I think um, to, to your, you know, to the question of, you know, what does this, what does the future of war look like? I don't think that we ultimately will be fighting wars without, you know, these entirely virtual wars. And for the for the reason that um, that anybody who loses a virtual um, war or a virtual battle always has the option of defecting from this agreement, right? And uh, to to honor the terms of to honor the the outcome of this virtual battle and move to physical battle. Um, and someone will always be willing to do that. So, and I think the higher the stakes get, the more likely it is um, that, uh, that a country or, you know, um, a, a military unit of some kind will, will be willing to do that because you always wanna look for another way to win, right? And if you are only fighting virtual battles, then you have not exhausted all of your options. Um, so I think that's just the reality of it. And there've been these interesting, actually there've been interesting sci-fi um, uh, ex I mean, yeah, um, examples of 
why of why it doesn't work right and so i mean sometimes if you've read ender's game you know where he thinks he's playing a video game and but it turns out and then he wins but it turns out actually in fact he was controlling real troops um and so ultimately you know you have to be controlling real forces um to win there's also that uh that wild um Star Trek episode in the original series, if you've seen that so one. I remember that one where, the, where, where they, <laughs> the, 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 the number of the calculated casualties mm -hmm. have to go, you know, kill themselves, right? Report to be exterminated. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, and, and the reason they do that is, is because um, people wouldn't agree to any of the outcomes otherwise in the long run, right? I mean, right. It, doesn't, it doesn't give the entire back history about how this system developed, but I would imagine that, um, uh, that probably at some point they would have tried an entirely virtual war, but um, nobody's, you know, nobody's going to stick to that agreement forever. <laughs> do, do you anticipate that there can be some kind of global govern, uh, a global discussion uh, on a framework uh, on, on cyber warfare that can actually yield some kind of framework for all of this and rules of engagement, as it were? Yeah, I mean, I think there can be. There are already attempts to do so. You know, the um, you know the Talon Manual has gone through, uh, has you know already has a revised version out. So there, there's a lot of effort to do this, and I think it's an important thing to do um, because you do want to get it's you know you don't want the ethics to always be lagging so far behind um, the activity, especially when we can force, we can already foresee a lot of the ethical problems. Um, so I think in that sense, developing an, you know, um, certain types of constraints and ethics around cyber warfare will, uh, will, will be happen more easily than perhaps some of the ethics have been developed around other types of warfare earlier in our history. But the real challenge is that cyber warfare is still very new. And I think there's so much that we don't know about, not just what we can do, right? We're always gonna develop new things uh, that we're capable of, but also just what the, what the effects really are gonna be um, of different types of cyber attacks. And they have enormous ramifications because now you're, you're um, you know, uh, yeah, you're talking about ramifications in every, every single sector of a society. And we have no conception no real conception yet of the of the, the breadth of those impacts. Now there are those who who are arguing that, you know, in terms of defense spending, and, and I think I've heard this certainly in the United States, that you know, there should be a real shift away from spending on physical assets and much more on uh, preparations for uh, cyber warfare, cyber attacks, and preparations for you know, greater cybersecurity. Uh, what are your thoughts on this? Uh, I, I, I mean, is, is this something that is gaining currency or is it still like too early to say that this is, you know, it's time that we've seriously thought about it? Yeah, I mean, that. so that idea is always around in some form. Right. And so, for example, um, you know, uh, you know, a couple of decades ago, there was the federal revolution of military affairs, right? So there's always this push to try to to shift resources to more technologically advanced um, uh, military activity. And I think that's really important. <laughs> um, you don't want to, you, uh, you, you want to be the leader in the military technology always. Um, but I think, so actually my, my squishy answer on this is actually all militaries um, 
have enormous waste in their spending. And I think actually what they should be doing instead of trying to, and what, what would be more effective is instead of trying to claw more money out, um, more uh, total amounts of money out for a military budget is to become much more efficient about the military spending that's already been done. You can shift a lot of resources over to the new technology simply from all the waste that's being generated from the existing spending. Now, that's that's the hard way of doing it because <laughs> it's it's easier it's easier to lobby mm-hmm. for um, for sexy new technology. Um, but that that's really the way it should be done. There's no reason that we can't have a, a very robust physical, um, a ro- robust and prepared physical military while pursuing a lot of the new technological and cyber um, capacity. Right. Now, talk, uh, let's move on to talking about your current research and your next book on, I think you're talk, looking at authoritarianism. Uh, uh, what's it about? Yeah, so this next book project is totally different. Um, so we'll see. It's gonna be a, it'll be a test of my abilities. <laughs> I'm looking at soft authoritarianism as a model in East Asia, um, Hong Kong, a, a, mostly, um, but also in East Asia, looking at the ways in which it differs from some of the soft authoritarianism we're more familiar with internationally and also some of the unique challenges and uh, dangers of authoritarianism here. Or, sorry, there, I'm no longer here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, interesting because um, my undergraduate thesis was mm-hmm. on the concept of constitutional authoritarianism. Uh, The idea that you could, within constitutional framework, uh, introduce sort of authoritarian uh, uh, practices or somehow rationalize authoritarian approach using constitutional means. Okay, so you are very appreciative because this is all the rage right now. (laughs) Yeah, no, so um, (laughs) I also did that at at master's level too, um, uh, Mm -hmm. focusing on, at that time, the Philippines and in Singapore. Uh, and um, uh, so I find this fascinating because I think in some ways uh, a constitutional authoritarian system may even be the trickier trickier to deal with if you're someone who wants to have greater freedom or express themselves, whatever, because in, in some ways it's, it's a weaponization of ambiguity in some ways, a weaponization of the rule of law um, to, 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 to circumvent uh, freedoms or human rights or what have you. Um, uh, and, you know, in, in some ways, in a, in a straight out authoritarian system, maybe things are clear, that the red lines are, are, are clear, but in a, in, a, in a kind of constitutional authoritarian system, the red lines may not be so clear. And, and I think in some ways, uh, we, we, you know, that's how Singapore in many ways has kind of operated. And, and to some extent in Hong Kong, this may be, you know, where we're heading in terms of a kind of constitutional framework, but underneath there's some kind of more authoritarian approach than we've had before. Uh, just your thoughts. Sorry, I, I didn't mean to go on too much, but it, it is a topic that I've been thinking about since I was an undergraduate. Yeah, no, I mean, I think you're, you're right about all those things. And I think the, the part of the, part of the danger is um, part of what makes, what makes authoritarianism so hard to combat in these situations is all the things that you mentioned. And plus the using, using the whole idea of the constitution as 
um, as a way of legitimizing all of the authoritarian. Because if you, because you know, it's if you look at a country that has a constitution, um, it has all of these procedures laid out, and you know, in the case of Hong Kong, it has um, you know limited franchise, right? That people do vote for some things. Then you know, unless you're looking very closely, even if you're living in a society, um, and uh, you know, you may not realize <laughs> the ways in which actually this. Yeah, the system is designed to be stacked against um, certain uh, certain types of political activity, certain uh, parts of the population, certain types of political conceptions. And so um, because constitutions, we just reflexively think, well, constitutions are good. Constitutions limit power, um, the power of the rulers, but they can be designed in lots of different ways. And, and that's one of the really interesting things about Hong Kong um, is the... Um, and in on a lot of these other constitutional authoritarianisms is the way they're actually using all of these constitutional processes to achieve, um, yeah, to achieve what they want. Do you think that this is an issue that Americans should be concerned about? Uh, I don't want to put you in the spot, but I mean, because <laughs> uh, uh, some, some would argue that, you know, the United States uh, constitutionalism has been in recent years threatened because uh, there have been tendencies or people have observed or, or argued that the, there have been tendencies towards sort of a more authoritarian approach uh, to governance. Yeah, so um, I'm of two minds of this because one, I, I, I don't want to be overly alarmist about, you know, a four-year administration. On the other hand, a lot of really bad things happened. <laughs> <laughs> so I think there is definitely cause for alarm. Um, but I think just on the issue of the constitutional design, I think it's legitimate to ask questions about it. Um, I, and I know a lot of people are asking questions about the electoral college and whether it's, um, whether it, it's, it's still a good structure, to, to voting structure to have. I personally don't think we should get rid of the electoral college for a variety of reasons, um, but it doesn't mean that there aren't a lot of there aren't a lot of loopholes um, in the ways in the way the electoral system is designed um, that perhaps should not that yeah I, yeah that should be that shouldn't be looked at. Um, I think I think that. How do I want to? Um, what do I want to say? I think there, so. There are multiple problems here. So one is the so one is the structural problems, right? Uh, and there's uh, the structural challenges um, of the federal system, the electoral college. Um, but I think there are also lots of challenges that aren't written into constitutional design. So, for example, the ways in which parties um, organize themselves, the political parties organize themselves, and how they govern at the local levels. And so one of, the, one of the things that's happening right now in the US is the, um, the realization that actually the local, um, local parties, um, local political organization is actually usually much more extreme than say the national organization, right? And so, um, you know, and so, so recently we've had all these um, local, you know, state level, um, for example, Republican Party, um, uh, the state level, Repo sorry, the Republican Party at the state level censoring, um, you know, its own members for, 
you know, speaking out against um, President Trump and speaking out against, um, you right. know, this election, yeah. against the election. Whereas I think the national leaders would, don't want any part of this, right? But they're being dragged, um, they are allowing themselves. I, I, I want to give them agency. They are going along um, intentionally with local extremism. That's a question of how the party is governed, right? right? And um, that's not a constitutional issue, but it is, it is a political, it's a, it's a political organizational issue. Right. So, um, but, but this, this does, uh, but the, um, so I guess the question is then how, how, how specific should constitutions be um, yes. on these things? I didn't, and I, Again, I mean, I think there are trade-offs, right? So the American Constitution is really fascinating for how brief it is, right. <laughs> um, right. which I think is both a strength, but also we can we also are coming up against weaknesses. But if you look at constitutions that are much more detailed and um, much more specific, you know, um, they don't necessarily solve all these problems. So there's a trade-off. Right. Um, Indeed, yeah. I, I, I think this is an interesting notion because I mean, same in, in the Philippines. And, and one of the things I, I discussed when I was doing research was, um, you know, constitution. After Marcos fell, they wrote a constitution rather quickly, and mm -hmm. I, I think that there was a, a sense of urgency and also a, a kind of um, reaction to the previous administration or the long administration of, of Marcos that resulted in a constitution that was perhaps not ideal and where many concepts were not well thought of and uh, thought about or thought out. Uh, and also uh, there's the issue of um, you know, norms and conventions versus what you actually put down uh, in a constitution. Uh, and then of course that opens the door to you know, what is interpretations of the constitution, judicial reviews and all that sort of thing which um, we, we've of course had here an explosion of judicial review in, in Hong Kong. Uh, but I, I think you may, I mean, this, this does raise a question. I mean, should we, um, uh, should countries be just thinking, rethinking and writing better constitutions? I mean, in other words, uh, what, what does go into a good constitution? What is a good constitution? Uh, in, in the sense that something should be flexible enough, not, not too rigid, but, how do you get the balance right? And it, it's a very difficult challenge. Yeah, yeah, and I think we we still struggle with. So this, I mean, this is something I don't know very much about. There are there are a bunch of constitutional experts um, who, uh, you know, who work on who work on developing constitutions. Um, but I do. I think it's a it is a work in progress. You don't. And I guess my instinct, but again, so I'll tell you what my instinct is. Um, and then why it's a problem. Right, right. <laughs> my, in, my instinct is um, uh, to try to leave a lot of room when you're writing a constitution, to try to leave a lot of room for development. And because you don't, again, especially what you, when you're writing a constitution, you're actually, you're, you're necessarily at a particular, you're at a transition point in a country's history. And um, you don't know how things are going to turn out. And so you do want to leave room for development. Um, you know, even our own, even the U.S.'s own constitution, immediately there were, you know, 10 amendments. So, <laughs> um, and uh, so you want, you want to leave that room, but that, but the, the, the danger of that is that it does require um, strong sense of norms um, and agreed upon norms. It does require certain type of agreement about the country's ethos. Um, it's 
historic world historical mission um and uh the you know what the essence of that country is what does it mean to be that country if you don't have that agreement then you know having yeah um a wide open constitution we yeah, I mean, it's pretty easy to figure out what's going to happen so but i do think that you can't legislate you can, so it, it's going to necessarily require a lot of norm um norm forming and virtue development which is a dangerous business for states to be getting into but that has to be there to sustain the law because um, the fact is you can't you cannot legislate every loophole out of existence right until, until of course uh, you know a norm breaker comes along right this is the, the mm -hmm. issue that's happened in the united states and uh, you know that, that somebody came along and said well you know the norm must be damned that i'm going to uh, do things yeah. that uh, i want to do yeah, and the real test is going to be whether some of those norms under a new administration can be brought back, right? right. Um, I don't know. <laughs> Interesting. Um, now, now yeah. uh, tell me about, um, well, so when do you expect your book to, to come out? If you're, you know, are you planning on next year or couple of years? Um, well, not soon enough for my editor. Oh. <laughs> so I'm already late. Um, so this, I don't know, um, the sooner the better. Um, yeah. I was hoping to come back to Hong Kong last year to do some research. Oh, right. Um, yes. Yeah. Coronavirus has, um, yeah, upended all my plans. So we will see. Um, yeah. But I, I hope before too long. I think, you know, it's, it's really topical. Um, yes, for sure. and, and things are also changing very quickly. Um, on the ground, and so um, so we'll see. So that <laughs> yeah. Now tell us a bit about yeah. the U.S. Naval War College. I've heard about it. I, I've always wondered about it. Is it is it what I imagine it to be? Uh, <laughs> Navy officers going to college. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes and no. So they are Navy officers, um, but there are also lots of other. Um, we do have um, we do have students from all the services, and we also have some civilian students, you know, for example, from the State Department. And ah, yeah, um, yeah um, we also have lots of, we also have a fair number of foreign officers. And that's a big part of our program um, who come and, uh, uh, you know, to get their degrees. So, but they aren't going to college. So these are all junior and senior officers. They've all graduated from college. And this is what um, we call professional military education. So they're all, um, they're mostly getting master's degrees um, with us. So, um, so yeah, I don't know what else you might imagine. <laughs> but <laughs> well, I, I once lectured in uh, Canada's equivalent of it. Um, and, and okay. so I imagine it's about the yeah. same sort of thing. Uh, it's yeah. very, it's a very plush sort of place. So it was, when I went to the Canada's version, it didn't seem very um, military, if I could put it that way. It seemed actually a rather comfortable place to, to be. Uh -huh. <laughs> Although I have to say, I'd never seen a lecture hall where the students were so well dressed. And <laughs> okay. <laughs> Wait, so were your students in, do they go to, do, do they come to school in uniform? Yeah, they did. Well, uh, okay. I, I gave just one lecture uh, mm -hmm. at, at the Canadian equivalent in Toronto, and um, mm -hmm. and they were all dressed, yeah, dressed uniforms. I, I was quite impressed. Okay. Yeah. So our students actually don't come to school in uniform. Oh, right. Um, yeah, which is interesting, um, and it's a it's a deliberate decision, I think, because so. Um, in my department, so I'm in the strategy and policy department, and every department handles it differently. But we actually um, we have we're 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 very, um, we have a certain model of team teaching. And so you have a military professor and then a civilian professor who's a PhD in the classroom at the same time. Um, 
but I think this is the same for all departments. So our military professors are sometimes, they can be of lower rank um, than some of our students. And so, <laughs> um, which, you know, since uh, uh, the military is, it is a very hierarchical organization. There's a lot of awareness of your rank relative to everybody else's and of respect that is, um, uh, is conferred as a result of that. And, and so I think having the students come to class in their civilian clothes um, helps with trying to create interesting. A, right. a more open um, educational environment because right. um, we do want them to be able to talk freely and discuss things and argue with each other. And that's kind of hard when they're all well, in that's uniform. interesting because, yeah. you know, when I lectured at, as I say, Canada's equivalent, um, I was in a suit and everybody was, in, everybody else, uh, and, and I felt intimidated. And <laughs> 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 seeing everybody like, um, uh, mm -hmm. you know, in, in, in dress uniforms, or what I thought were dress uniforms, but um, mm -hmm. anyway, um, interesting. Now, um, uh, so you're right now at Hoover Institution mm -hmm. in, uh, at Stanford, and then you're going back at the end of the summer to the U.S. Naval War College. Um, so tell us now, uh, you, you alluded to it a little bit, uh, what's uh, life like been in, uh, during the pandemic, uh, the teaching, the research, the I guess uh, the lockdowns that you've had, uh, how have you been coping? Yeah, um, so I have been super lucky because I have a job. <laughs> so, um, and I have a job that I can work from home uh, in doing. And so in the spring, when we went into lockdown, we you know, moved all our classes online and the, the students were real troopers about that. Um, you know, it's kind of tough as a teacher because you, you know, I think all teachers feel the same way. You really want that classroom interaction. Um, you get more free-flowing conversation, but the students coped pretty well. Um, and, but since June, I've been, I've not been teaching. And, you know, to be honest, compared to what most people are going through, it's pretty easy, right? I do my research. Right. <laughs> um, the frustrating part is, you know, it's hard to get resources. Uh, you, you know, it's hard to go to the library, get into archives, obviously. And you wanted to go to Hong Kong, yeah, you didn't come. Yeah, it'd be nice to be able to do some field work. Um, and so that's, um, you know, so that's kind of a bummer. Um, it's hard to, to meet people and, and talk about things um, as well. But, you know, um, I am spending the pandemic in California, in coastal California. The weather's great, I can't complain. Um, and my family believes in science, so I haven't had to deal with, um, you know, oh, really? the, uh, yeah, yeah, worrying about family members doing right. really stupid things. So, so I've been lucky, been very lucky. Now, now we've heard reports here about, you know, the um, issues that Asian Americans have had to Face, particularly you know, Chinese Americans have had to face uh, during this period where you know there were uh, you know, racism or even just uh, odd comments here and there uh, well, what are your thoughts and you know in your own experiences uh, you know over the past year or so how has it been yeah so I personally in on this front have also been very lucky um, I've not encountered anything direct um, so I can only speak about what other people um, have encountered, what, you know, what's been told to me um, and what I've been seeing. So, you know, it's a, um, I think, I guess two main thoughts. One is that this shouldn't be, this is not surprising. I think um, that the kind of anti-Asian sentiment, um, should have been expected in 
in a situation like this where you have a pandemic, people are scared, right? right. Um, and there's a long history of, you know, um, of a kind of very visceral, um, visceral fear of viruses and also then associating things that you dislike with viruses and disease. Um, so there's so there's a long history of, I mean, it's just a natural human reaction, right. um, but there's also this history of, um, you know, political history, very recent political history of associating um, undesirable people with disease, right? And, and so in the context of, so this pandemic, also in the context of this kind of broader geopolitical sh um, shift in US-China relations, I think has been a really bad combination. Um, it's something, and the the harm, it's, um, the ensuing harm for Asian Americans, I think should have been predicted and we should have done a better job of trying to deal with that. Unfortunately, a lot of the, uh, the rhetoric was coming from the top, um, from the previous administration. And so um, that's, that that's a hard, um, it's hard to combat against that. Right. Um, the I think the you know the hope is that, and I think um, so. I, I I think I think the CCP has not done Chinese um, Asian Americans any favors by being quite. The Chinese sensitive. Communist Party, just to make sure. Yes, <laughs> so the Chinese Communist Party yeah. has not done you know international Asians any favors, including international Chinese. Um, any favors by being very secretive about um, the coronavirus and its development. Um, and so that that has added, um, that has helped fan the flames. It, that doesn't excuse anything that's going on <laughs> domestically in the US, um, all the, all the anti-Asian stuff that's going on in the US. Um, but, you know, there's, I think there's, there's, there's reason to be hopeful. We do have a different administration, administration with different rhetoric, and you see a lot of um, community pushback against, um, you know, these, you know, anti-Asian discrimination and attacks and things like that. So, um, I think we're, I, I think, I don't want to say things are being handled as well as they can, but um, but people are, but there are a lot of people who are trying their best. Um, what you say about uh, you know, China and the CCP, and, uh, I mean, that hews back in some ways to what you talked about earlier, the issue of trust, you know, building trust uh, uh, in geopolitics, building uh, trusting communities here besides. And, you know, that, 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 uh, that's always a very difficult thing uh, where maybe you don't see the immediate impact of, uh, of the breakdown in trust. Yeah. Oh, and that actually, this comes. This this actually gets to an interesting point about the constitutionalism, right? Because, I mean, of course, countries lie to each other about their shortcomings. You know, it's part of, you know. And I think, and frankly, the United States would do a lot more lying if it could. But we there are the actual constitutional um, uh, protection. There are constitutional barriers to that, right? You do have a free press, um, you know, and then. And then related to the free press, you have very other types of, these are not constitutional regulations, but you know, just legal code, for example, Freedom of Information Act and stuff like this. And so actually um, this political structure of the United States um, forces the US to be more transparent than probably it would like to be. Um, right. And that you know, has some costs, but it also does in the long run make it more trustworthy, right? right. Um, you know, and, and indeed, we, you know, we've yeah. seen that those protections 
kick in in the United States in, in, in the last four years, certainly, that there was um, you know, a certain level of transparency that could not be violated. I mean, at, at the end of the day, because the media was still there, uh, even though there was maybe part of the media that became a kind of state media outlet, as it were, but there were still, you know, the, the predominantly the, you know, the, the media was there to provide those safeguards. And, it, and it's, a, mm -hmm. it's a big difference uh, from, yeah. say, other places that we can think about. <laughs> Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, yeah. uh, anyway, uh, Yvonne, this has been fantastic. I really uh, enjoyed uh, catching up with you because uh, yeah, you know, no, it's been great to talk to you. You used to have uh, an office right across the hall from me, and now <laughs> yeah, those are the days. The I miss it. I mean, I do miss being in Hong right. Kong. <laughs> so. Well, we hope we can welcome yeah. you uh, back here to Hong Kong U sometime soon, and I uh, yes. hope you're Hopefully. doing well. So uh, to our viewers and listeners, uh, let me commend uh, Yvonne's article on Asia Global Online. Come to Asia Global Online and Asia Global Institute websites to sign up for our email. Uh, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, YouTube, and uh, listen to our Asia Global podcast. So Yvonne, thank you again very much. It's lovely to see you and uh, keep well. And I uh, hope to see you here soon. Nice. My pleasure. You take care. Yep. Bye. All right. Bye-bye.